Now, uh, this past week we had tax day, uh, one of the worst days in America's uh, yearly calendar. So it's very appropriate that we come to this passage of scripture which deals with the issue of paying taxes. And we're going to cover Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. And what you're going to discover in this is a, an attempt to track Jesus. And they're going to use the issue of paying taxes as the, the snare or the trap. Okay? So, first of all, I want you to notice in verse 15 the preparations involved in this entrapment. It says, Then the Pharisees went, and they plotted how they might entangle him, or that would be entrap him, or ensnare him, in his talk. Now notice, first of all, in this verse, that this is an organized attempt to trap Jesus. Uh, it says they plotted there in verse 15. Do you see that? They planned. This is, this is a scheme. This is not something that just happens on the spur of the moment. Well organized. Notice the tactic they used to entrap Jesus in verse 15. They plotted how they might entangle him or entrap him in his talk. Self-incrimination. They want to trap him with his own words. Now let me tell you something. <clears throat> This is a tactic that's been used for years. We have a law in the United States called the Miranda Law. Where if someone gets arrested, the police are required, according to law, to explain to that person their rights. They say, you know, you have a right to remain silent. Because all that you say can and will be used against you. So you're warned not to speak. Otherwise, your words may incriminate you. I was just looking at a PBS special the other day on five young men who were teenagers in Chicago. You may have seen it. It was a Ken Burns special where the police arrested these guys for a rape in Central Park. Actually, it was in New York where the police arrested these five guys for a rape. Uh, they said, we weren't, we weren't where that was. We don't, we don't know what you're talking about. And they said, well, you know, you just need to say that you were there. Because if you'll do that, we'll let you go home. These are kids 17 years old. Some were 15 years old. They were scared to death. They said, you were there, you know it, weren't you? And they did that for 15 hours. And finally the kids broke down. They put paper in front of them and said, now write this down. And tell us, uh, and we're... Who was holding this girl down? And they had to write all this stuff down. They made up stories. And then what they did is they went to trial and they used these kids' words against them. They entrapped them. The police knew what they were doing. This wasn't a mistake. This is how they operated. Well, it comes out eight or ten years later, that they were entrapped because there was another guy in prison who admitted to their rape. And by this time they had DNA evidence, and sure enough, these guys weren't even anywhere. There was no DNA footprint for them. There was no evidence. They were all convicted on their own words. It was self-incrimination and something they hadn't even done. 
Well, that's what they're trying to do here with Jesus. We have now this Boston uh, bomber, and there's a question, I haven't read it recently, whether they should read him as a, his Miranda rights or treat him as a terrorist. Familiar with that? So this is very relevant to what's happening today. So they want to entrap Jesus in his own words. And uh, now, if Jesus were living today, and he was being arrested or accused of something, the best, and what, do you, what is the best advice, by the way, if a person's arrested? What would you tell them to do? If the police gave, read you your Miranda rights and said, now you have a right to remain silent because all that you say, all that you say, can and will be used against you, what do you think the best advice would be for you to do? Yeah. Keep your mouth shut and get a lawyer. I don't care who you are. Bob, would you say amen to that? Amen. amen. And who would you call? <laughs> well, Jesus isn't going to keep his mouth shut. He's not going to call a lawyer. He's going to tell him what he thinks. So Now look at verse 16. We see the participants in this plot, in this entrapment. There are two groups. In verse 15, you have the Pharisees. And then in verse 16... It says, they sent to him their disciples, that's the disciples of the Pharisees, with the Herodians. Now the Pharisees and the Herodians normally don't rub shoulders. They don't get along. They uh, rarely have anything to do with each other. This would be like the most liberal Democrat in Congress working with the most conservative Republican in Congress over a controversial issue. And it just doesn't happen. So, well, Harry Reid and Ted Cruz on abortion or something like that. Okay, so uh, what you have is the Pharisees are a group of very pious Jews. Oftentimes we uh, malign them, but they're basically what we call good Jews. They see it as their job to protect the law of Moses. They try to keep the law of Moses according to the Jewish traditions. And they see themselves as the protectors of the law of Moses. They're trying to preserve that law. And that's not easy when you live in the Roman Empire. You remember back in chapter 19, they said to Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? See, they were trying to find out. They're trying to say, but where does he stand on the law regarding divorce? So they're very interested in the law. And they're a group of separatists. They have nothing to do with Gentiles. They don't intermingle with Gentiles. So this would be like a group of fundamentalist Christians who don't want to have anything to do with anybody out there that's different than them. They certainly wouldn't have anything to do with tax collectors and sinners. They hang out with their own kind of people. Okay? So that's the Pharisees. Now who are the Herodians? The Herodians are the people who support the Herods who are the rulers of the Jewish people in different regions of Palestine. And so these guys are compromisers. They'll hang out with anybody. And uh, they support the Roman government because uh, the Herods were appointed by the Roman government. So these are supporters of the Roman government, supporters of the Herods, the Jewish leaders of the people. And now they're going to work together, which is a rare thing, and they're working together to entrap Jesus. Okay. Now look at the strategy that they use, okay, in verse 16. They said, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach 
the way of God in truth. We know you're true. We know you're sincere. We know you're a man of integrity. We know you represent God. And I can hear the Pharisees go, hardy, har, har, har. Because they believe they represented God. And uh, so they're using flattery. The strategy is to use flattery. Watch out for people who come and flatter you. They may have a different motive than you think. They may not really be telling you the truth. They're using that flattery for a purpose. And then look what they say in the middle of verse 16. Nor do you care about anyone. You don't worry about things. You don't worry about people's opinion. And they give the reason there. Because, look at the end of verse 16. You do not regard the person of men. In other words, Jesus... Uh, doesn't take a public survey before he pronounces what he thinks. Okay. Uh, he doesn't wait to see what other people say before he makes a public statement. Okay. He speaks his mind. Uh, irregardless of what others think. That's not like us. This is a rarity. Most of us don't offer our opinions until we find out what someone else thinks first. Whether it's our boss, whether it's the pastor, whether it's our political party, we don't go against them. We sort of hold our opinions to ourselves until we hear what others say and then we hop in. Jesus is not a respecter of person. He doesn't care what other people say. He doesn't test which way the wind's blowing before he offers his opinion. Now, I don't believe that the Pharisees and the Herodians really believe that. They're just trying to entrap him. They're using flattery. So that's their strategy. Now in verse 17, they actually spring the trap. Look what it says. Tell us, therefore, since you're not a respecter of persons, you don't take public polls before you talk, tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful? What kind of law are they referring to? Jewish law. The law of Moses. According to the law of Moses, can you pay, should you pay taxes to a foreign government that's oppressing you? We know that the Roman government says you should pay taxes, so he's not talking about the Roman law. He's talking about Jewish. They're talking about Jewish law. Okay? Now notice the question. In verse 17, is it lawful, that would be according to Moses, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? What kind of taxes? Not talking about income tax. Okay? This is very important. For all you tax rebels, it's not talking about income tax. It's not talking about sales tax. It's not talking about property tax. It's not talking about taking the Dallas tollway and paying a toll tax. The tax that they're referring to, and we know this based on the word in here in the Greek, is what was called the poll tax, P-O-L-L, -L, or the head tax, which was a tax you paid just for being alive. If you were a conquered people. And so remember when Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem because... There was a, a census being taken. They had to go and register for the census. 
And that would determine, hey, you're alive. We have a census in the United States every 10 years. We want to find out who's alive. And so they went there, and then it was determined that they were alive when they registered. And then a tax for being alive was assessed to them. And so that's the question, is should we as oppressed people, as conquered people, pay a tax to Caesar? Now, we have two groups. We have the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees hated these taxes. They knew that Israel was not to be an oppressed people. Israel was to be set free. They were oppressed in Egypt. And what did God do? Set them free. And they were not to oppress any foreigner or stranger that came within their gates. And now, here they are, back under bondage. And it's galling the Pharisees that they have to pay for this tax. And they do not believe that the law of Moses requires that. The Herodians, on the other hand, support Herod and the Roman government. So guess what they believe? Yes, we should pay a tax. So here you have one group saying, yes, you should. The other one saying, no. If Jesus sides with the Pharisees, he breaks the law of Moses. He'll lose a lot of his followers, won't he? A lot of his pious religious followers who believe that you should keep the law, he's going to lose some support. If he says, no, you shouldn't pay the tax, the Herodians are going to turn him in as a revolutionary and he's going to be arrested. So he can't win for losing, you know, whichever way he goes. On uh, the one hand, he'll break the Jewish law if he says pay the tax. On the other hand, if he says, don't pay the tax, he'll break the Roman law. How can you win? Now, there was a man back in AD 6 by the name of Judas of Galilee. You haven't heard of him, but if you read the Josephus, the Jewish historian, and you read some other works, you'll learn about Judas of Galilee whose father was a rebel priest. He said that the Jews who were running the temple shouldn't be running the temple. He said he should be in line. And his son, Judas, proclaimed himself to be the king of the Jews. He was a revolutionary, and he led a movement. He had a philosophy. It was called the Fourth Philosophy. And he got a whole bunch of zealots to follow him, and his goal was to overthrow the Roman government. Well, Rome came in and they squashed that rebellion as quickly as they could. And to drive the fear of Rome into the people, they took all of his followers, thousands of them, and crucified every single one of them along a roadside that lasted for miles. And when people walked down that road and saw all of his followers crucified, they realized uh, we better watch out. We better not say you shouldn't pay taxes, you shouldn't fight against Rome. And that man is mentioned in the Bible. Judas of Galilee, you know that? I want to show you where it is. It's in Acts chapter 5. Just one reference. But if you go back to uh, Roman history, and Jewish history, you can learn all about this gentleman. Acts chapter 5.
And when you get there, look down at verse 37. Remember, this is Gamaliel's advice. This whole section is about Gamaliel. Remember, they said, what should we do about all these Christians? Gamaliel says, hey, just let it run its course. If it's a movement from God, it'll last. If it's not, it'll, be, it'll die out. Remember that? But look it down in verse 37. It says, after this man, Judas of Galilee arose in the days of the census, and he drew many people after him. He also perished. And all who obeyed him were dispersed. That's Judas of Galilee. He was a tax rebel. And he was put to death and his followers were put to death. And the Herodians are trying to label Jesus as another Judas of Galilee. And they're trying to entrap him and say he's causing the people not to pay taxes. He needs to be arrested. He needs to be crucified. And so this is the entrapment that they're trying to uh, perpetrate at this time. So go back to Matthew chapter 22 and look at verse 18 and you see how this plot is detected. But look what it says in verse 18. But Jesus perceived their wickedness, their malice. And he said, why do you test me You hypocrites. The word why speaks to reason or motive. What are you doing this for? What's your your reasoning for this? And the word hypocrite speaks of their insincerity. He knows that it's a trap, and they're really not interested in the question of whether it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. So then he makes a demand. He says, show me the tax money. Give me a piece of coinage that you pay taxes with. And so they brought him a denarius. This was the coinage with which Rome demanded the taxes be paid. So he said, show me some tax money. And the Pharisees reach in their pocket and they hand him a denarius. Okay? Which is equal to one day's wages. So now we know how much Jews had to pay taxes just for being alive to the Roman government. One day's wage. And then he asked this question. Look at verse 20. He said to them, Whose image, which we get our Greek word icon, our English word icon out of the Greek, whose icon or image and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. So they hand him the coin. He looks at it and he says, Whose image is on that coin? Now, if I showed you a quarter, I said, whose image is on that coin? You'd say, it's what? George Washington. He said, whose image is on that coin? And whose inscriptions on the coin? He said, Caesar's. And if I brought in a denarius, you'd see a picture of Tiberius Caesar right on that denarius. And you would see an inscription that said, Tiberius Caesar... Son of divine Augustus. Tiberius Caesar, son of God. For a Jew to carry in their pocket or in their purse a coin with an image on it 
was to break the second commandment that thou shalt not make for yourself any graven image or bow down and worship. Anything on the earth, anything that moves, you cannot have a graven image. Now, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't have the coin. He's not carrying a graven image on him, him, his person. But who's carrying the graven image? The Pharisees are carrying carrying the graven image, and in doing so, they're breaking what? The law of Moses, the second commandment. Now, it's very interesting. Years before, the Romans put up a big standard, a banner, a flag, in the temple in Jerusalem with Caesar's picture on it. And the Pharisees went wild and they tore it down. Why is it that they're not throwing those coins away out of their pocket? Same image. Same inscription. You have any idea? Oh, wait a second. You can do something with that coin. It benefits me. So I want you to see this. So uh, many Jews would not carry these coins. They minted their own coins. Shekels. Didn't have any image on it. That's how they traded with each other. But what are the Pharisees carrying in their pocket? Coins with Caesar's graven image on it. So Jesus says, well, whose image is on it? And whose inscription is on it? And they said, Caesar's. Now, this is very important. Whoever mints the coin owns the coin. Whoever mints the coin owns the coin. Okay? Caesar minted, the, minted these coins. These coins belong to him. How do we know they belong to him? There's his picture. It's right on there. These are coins owned by Caesar. Coins are just means of exchange. You have some money in your pocket, you really don't own it. Just the government has issued that. They can recall the money anytime they want. Remember when they recalled gold? Gold coins? Some of you still have them. You didn't obey the government. Remember when you did that? They said, turn all your gold coins, turn in all your dollars that say silver certificates on them. Remember all that? And uh, guess what you spoke you were to do? You were to turn it in. They're going to give you a piece of paper. It's a federal note. Federal Reserve note. So the government owns the coin. So Caesar owns the coin because his image is on it. Now Jesus gives instructions. Look what he says in verse 21. He said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That means give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Return to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What are you doing with Caesar's money in your pocket? Relinquish that. Now listen very carefully. He's not saying pay the tax. He's not saying pay the tax. There are other passages that talk about paying taxes. But this doesn't say, it doesn't say pay the tax. What does it say? Now don't read into it. Why are you reading into that? What's it say? Get it back. Get rid of that. You shouldn't be holding that. When you hold that in your pocket, you're breaking the second commandment. Give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Use a different medium of exchange. Get rid of that money, you hypocrite. You're not really interested in taxes. And then look what he says. In verse 21. And render, that's understood, to God the things 
that are gods. Now, what's gods? That which bears God's image. What belongs to Caesar? That which has Caesar's image on it. What belongs to God? That which has God's image on it. You have any guests who has God's image? Who's made in God's image? God said, let us make man in our image. Genesis. And so he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are the icons of God. We are the image of God. He owns us. We're not our own. Therefore, you know what we should do? We should surrender ourselves to God. We should give ourselves, relinquish ourselves to God for His use. But the problem is we want one foot in the world and one foot in God's kingdom. And that's what the Jews wanted. That's what the Pharisees wanted. That's what the Herodians wanted. And instead of giving themselves to God, and instead of worshiping God, guess what they're trying to do? Instead of giving themselves to God, instead of worshiping God, guess what they're trying to do? Trap God's representative. The very one who speaks for God. They're not really interested in knowing what God says, or they'd listen to Jesus, wouldn't they? They're trying to trap God's authorized representative, God's son. They're willing to follow Tiberius Caesar, son of Augustus, that son of God, rather than following the real son of God. <coughs> so, let me ask you a question. Who do you think's really been caught in the trap here? I think it is not Jesus. I think they've been caught in the trap. So look what it says in verse 22. When they heard these words, they, what? Were amazed. They marveled and they left him and they went their way. This is how we know that Jesus didn't say pay taxes in this passage. If he would have said, oh, I think you should pay taxes to Caesar, guess what the Pharisees would have said? Gotcha! <laughs> gotcha! But when he said what he said, whoa, I guess what they do? They turn like little mealy mouths, you know? They run away. Now, one word of caution. <laughs> We must be very careful when we read that verse. Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, that we do not interpret that verse to mean that there is a separation of church and state. How many times have I read that and people say, well, you render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, that's the state, and unto God the things that are God. Wrong. It doesn't mean that at all. There was no such thing as separation of church and state in those days. Politics and religion were one. Separation of church and state is a modern thing. It's connected to democracy. In France and in the United States where there were revolutions over these kinds of issues. So, there was no separation of church and state. Do not use that verse for separation of church and state. Church and state were one in those days. To support Rome with your taxes in those days was to worship Rome's gods. Now, what does this verse mean? This verse means there's two kingdoms. 
difference between separation of church and state. There are two kingdoms. Both kingdoms are governmental and religious. There is Caesar's kingdom, the Roman Empire. Religion and state go together. To support Rome and its empire is to support its gods and see Caesar as Lord and Son of God. The other kingdom is God's kingdom. It includes God's government. It's God's empire. It involves both you know, governmental issues and it involves religious issues. And to support God's kingdom is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay. Now, Matthew's writing this maybe 80, 85 A.D. These events take place in 30 A.D., but he's writing these down in 85 A.D. to an audience that's a church audience. And guess what he's telling these people? What, what would you get out of this if you were Matthew's audience reading this 50 years after the fact? He's saying, watch out. Don't put one foot in the world and one foot in God's kingdom and think that you can get along. That's what the Pharisees do. That's what the Herodians do. You can't serve two masters. Otherwise, you'll love the one and hate the other, or you'll hate the one and love the other. Jesus ends, you cannot serve God and mammon. And so we see that instead of entrapping Jesus, Jesus uses their words and what in their actions, and he he doesn't trap them, they trap themselves. And so they realized how wise Jesus really was. So next week we see Jesus confronted by the Sadducees who are going to try to entrap them using a doctrinal issue, the issue of whether there's a resurrection from the dead. And that's who we'll pick up next week. Lord, we thank you. <coughs> that we can look at a passage and we can get the sense, the meaning of the text, if we just read it clearly and not read into it. Oh, Lord, help us to, to avoid falling into these exegetical fallacies that so often <coughs> entrap us. Help us not to be so glib in quoting verses like render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's that God, the things of God, and then interpret them wrongly, and being proud of our interpretation as if we're right. Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to realize the real issue is whether we're seeking first the kingdom of God, His righteousness. If we do, we know that you'll take care of us. All things will be added unto us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.